Heavenly Father, we know that as we look into your word, we can achieve nothing, understand nothing without you helping us, without you sending your Holy Spirit to fill us, to open our eyes and our ears and to soften our hearts. Father, for those of us who read words that are so familiar, we pray for fresh, new ways of understanding. And for those coming to these words for the first time, we pray that you would change and challenge and inspire. We pray that what we do now will be pleasing in your sight and useful to us. In the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. So folks, we continue our journey through Luke's account of Jesus' life. And we find what I think is quite a strange passage. Um, the question at the centre of this passage that you'll uh, have picked up as Bernard read it uh, was the disciples arguing about who was the greatest. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I find that a strange question for the disciples to be asking at any stage uh, in light of who Jesus is. And they're sat with Jesus and they're arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest. However, the argument seems even more out of place when we think about precisely where it is. And if you were with us last week, or you've had the chance to read around these verses, you'll know and understand what I mean. Just in those verses before our passage, from verse, well, from verse 20, Jesus is talking to his disciples and instituting what we know as the Last Supper, which Rob Mars led us through so well last week. And in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And a dispute arose among them as to who was considered the greatest. You see, in that context, it seems even more bizarre that this is their argument, doesn't it? What is it that's going through the minds of the disciples? Jesus has just said, I'm about to die for you. I'm about to pour out my blood, my life for you. I am about to be the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. I'm about to give up all I am and all I have for you. What do you make of that, dear friends? To which they respond, yeah, well, I'm more important than Andrew, aren't I? And I'm not as bad as Judas. And if anyone's going to lead this group, Jesus, it must be me because I've got leadership qualities. I think it seems quite bizarre that it happens and certainly that it happens at this particular point. In light of the imminent death of Jesus, the most wonderful, loving and kind, generous, gentle, truthful, caring, honest person to ever live, those around him, his followers, seem to be obsessed with thinking about status and privilege and rights and what they can get at this particular moment. As Jesus gives everything, they're thinking what they can get. And before we tut and shake our heads at the disciples and think, oh, how pitiful they are, thank goodness we're not like that, perhaps we ought to be cautious because this attitude can so easily creep in to all of us, can't it? I've not heard anyone in this church, and I've only been coming here for about 45 years, but I've not heard anyone in this church saying, yeah, but I'm more important than you. I'm greater than you are. I've not heard that conversation, thankfully. It may happen, but I've not heard it. However, the attitude that is behind that view of what we can get and our status and our importance is sometimes evident. 
It's Jesus' death. It's in light of Jesus' death that all this stands in stark contrast, which is why every week in this church we celebrate his death of communion. We remind ourselves, keep doing these things, says Jesus, in remembrance of me. We sing about his death in the songs. We talk about it. We read about it. In light of his death, how can we start bickering with each other? How can we start trying to build ourselves up and put each other down in light of who Jesus is? and what he's done for us. How can we be so easily offended by each other, or upset by a particular style, or by something that somebody does or says in light of Jesus' death? How can we gossip about each other, or put each other down, or or judge other people, or, or think, even if we don't tut and shake our heads at people, think, oh, well, that's not very good behavior, is it? In light of who Jesus is and what he's done. That way of living... And, and living with each other in a church always leads to hurt or to bitterness or to division. And we follow a saviour who offers a very, very different way of life. One that is not only heading for a glorious kingdom feast with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Rob reminded us of that last Sunday, didn't he, when we thought about the, the Last Supper, that it's pointing us forward to that glorious day when we'll have the best party the world has ever known. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more darkness. But not only does the lifestyle lead to that goal, but it's a way of life that brings freedom and joy and deep, meaningful friendships and fellowships here and now if we live the way that Jesus does. Because we follow a saviour whose attitude it is to give and to give and to give and to keep on giving and not to count the cost. A saviour who doesn't look after number one. A saviour who not only refuses to put his own needs first, but doesn't give a thought to his own needs, but is constantly looking out to others and to the needs of others. A saviour whose attitude and mindset sometimes hurts, but carries on giving anyway. He doesn't keep a record of what he's done for us and what he's therefore had in return. He doesn't grit his teeth and carry on being kind and giving, and generous, but seething silently inside because it seems so wrong. He doesn't stop looking out for others and putting others first when it's painful or exhausting or costly. He doesn't complain that giving his time and energy in such a one-sided way seems deeply unfair. He doesn't cease to be generous and outward-looking if the person that he's caring for or serving doesn't deserve it. So I wonder, how do we measure up to that kind of servant attitude, to that kind of giving mindset, to that kind of generosity of spirit? Jesus' mindset, his attitude, his behaviour is to give and give and give and not to count the cost, to take any cost on himself. He calls us to follow in his footsteps. And as contradictory as it may sound, That way of living, the Jesus way of living, is the path to true freedom and to the abundant life in all its fullness that Jesus offers us. Freeing ourselves from trying to look after ourselves and trying to promote ourselves and trying to put ourselves first and being introspective and focusing on all that's going on. Looking outward and being free to look after others. That's life in all its fullness that Jesus offers. The abundant life that he promises. So this little encounter here between Jesus and his disciples seems to be a powerful and 
always timely reminder of what it is, that what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that there will surely be some people, uh, perhaps even people here, who say, yeah, but such a lifestyle is impossibly difficult. It's worthless. It's a sign of weakness. It's stupid. It's contemptible. Why, why try and live like that? If It might have worked then, but it wouldn't work in today's cutthroat world. Or it might work if you're old. It wouldn't work if you're young. It might work if you're always fit and healthy. It wouldn't work if you're... It might, whatever it is, we might think. It might work for others. It just won't work for me. To those people, we say, come and meet Jesus. Come and meet Jesus. Come and see who he is and how he lived and what he offers in this way of life. Come and see if following Jesus is actually a life of perfect freedom. Come and see if not focusing ourselves, but actually being free to focus and look after others, actually works. Actually is a different way of life. Become a Christian and follow him, and he will fill us with his Holy Spirit, and we will then experience the desire to live that way. We won't look at that way of life and think it's impossible or I don't want it. When the Spirit of Jesus lives inside of us, we'll look at that life and say, that's how I want to be. I want to be more like Jesus. Sometimes I hear people saying, I'm not going to that church anymore. I just don't get anything out of it. Or I didn't enjoy that service. I got nothing from it. That seems to me to be the very opposite of the attitude that Jesus is calling his followers to have here in this passage. And again, to such people, and I had this conversation a while ago with some, somebody, we need to find a gentle and loving way to say, dear friend, you need to become a Christian. You need to become a follower of Jesus. You need to turn from a life that is centered on yourself. You need to turn from a life that's taking and receiving all the time and rather follow Jesus and be centered on him and his followers, and on giving and serving them, and on responding to Jesus' enormous generosity, not by seeking just to take and take and take, but to give, to be generous. The work of Jesus' Spirit is to create this servant heart within us. So come and turn to Jesus and start that work. You see, Jesus recognizes how utterly difficult and how utterly different it is to live that kind of life. And he knows that it's very different to the world of those around us, our friends, our neighbours, our, uh, our work colleagues, whoever it might be. People around us will say things like, oh, we, we, we can't live like that. You can't just be treated like that. You can't just give all the time and serve and just be constantly generous. It'll, help, it'll harm your mental health. It'll cause all sorts of problems. We can't live like that. Jesus' words in verse 26 are so striking, not only in the context of this passage, but in terms of following him generally. Talking about unbelieving people, Jesus says, and you'll see it there if you look down in verse 26, but you are not to be like that. You are not to be like the world. You are not supposed to live in the way that people who don't follow Jesus live. Jesus calls us to be different. And for many of us, perhaps most of us, that's difficult, isn't it? Being different is difficult. It's difficult standing out. It's difficult saying no to things and yes to other things when the world and those around us say and do exactly the opposite. Particularly when we're young. It's so difficult to be the odd one out. 
I wouldn't consider myself as necessarily old, but being in my mid-50s, I've realized that I'm the odd one out in most situations I'm in, and I'm reasonably relaxed about it now. Ask me that 30, 40 years ago, it felt very different. Uh, you'll have to decide for yourselves how you feel about it. But being different, being the odd one out, is often very, very diffi difficult. And having to say no, it, it's not just about saying yes to coming to church for an hour once a week and no to taking drugs or cruelty to animals. Being a follower of Jesus is, affects every area of our lives. And that's at least part of the reason why we meet together each week on Sundays or in the week to think about what that lifestyle is like. What does it mean to be different? What does it mean to follow Jesus? In which area of our lives is it going to affect us and make us different from those around us? The way that Jesus lived was so different to the way that people normally think and live and act. So following in his footsteps, which is what it means to be a Christian, will mean that we are going to be different to those around us. Again, when I was a teenager, I remember being at a number of Christian talks where I was told that the aim of being a Christian was to almost subvert society and be a Christian in society without anyone knowing that you were a Christian because that demonstrated that we were part of the world, that people didn't think that Christians were so weird and so far out and so different, so we wanted to be part of the world. It seems to be repeatedly as we read the Bible that that's the opposite of what Jesus says. We are meant to be different. People are meant to look at us and see us as different. And however uncomfortable that might make us feel at times, and it will, the point is that people look at us and think, what is it about you that's different? You seem to be able to cope with difficult situations better. You seem to have peace. You seem to have joy. You're constantly talking about the future in a hopeful way. That's because we follow Jesus. The idea is not to live as a Christian without anyone knowing it. The idea is live as a Christian so that people see that we're different. He calls us there in that verse and throughout his teaching and throughout the Bible. You are not to be like that. Our call, our difficult call, is to have a heart and mind and attitude of a servant, especially to our church family, to those of us sat around us this morning. Our attitude is to give and give and give and always look for ways to help and support others. We can't work that attitude up inside of us by just trying hard and gritting our teeth, but we can allow the Spirit of Jesus living inside of us to melt us and break us and reform us, remake us in his image. Jesus knows it's hard, and in the next few verses gives us some assurance that however difficult it is to live like that, it's going to be okay. He turns to Peter, doesn't he, in verse 31 and, and following. Peter, a very close friend of Jesus, shown leadership qualities and Jesus tells him all the disciples are going to stumble and fall in the hours ahead and Peter himself will deny even knowing Jesus in just within just a few hours. I think it's interesting here just as an aside Jesus uses Peter's old name in this encounter doesn't he? doesn't call him Peter. What does Peter mean? The rock. Here it's back to Simon. Simon, Simon. Failures ahead of you. He will be Peter again. Peter will be Peter again when he's restored, but at this point, that rock is trembling and about to fall. But it's okay. He will be Peter again. Jesus says this because he knew Peter. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew Peter. Peter's, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. No, I'll be okay. I'm, I'm prepared to go with you to prison, even to death. Jesus, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. I know you better than you know you. Jesus knows us better than we know us. He knows deep down who we are and what we're like. We might think 
if we're strong and brave and willing to stand out on the crowd and be different and to be servant-like and to give and not to think of our own needs. But Jesus knows, even before we fail to live this way, he knows that we will. That's not a reason to stop trying to live like this, but rather it's hugely comforting when we do stumble and fall and fail to live like that. And even more comforting, perhaps, is what else Jesus says to Peter. Having predicted his failure, Jesus says, Simon, I have prayed for you, and you will turn back. Fascinating, amazing to think that Jesus would pray for any of us, but to pray for his disciples, and to pray for us not just when we're doing good things, when we're following Jesus, when we're trying to be more like him, when we're with his people and succeeding. No, but he prays for us when we deny him, when we fail, when we sin, when we mess up, when we mess up in a huge way. Still then, he prays for us and seeks us and draws us back and then says to Peter, you will turn back and I'll have more work for you. Failure, even massive failure like Peter's, doesn't mean in the end, it just means an opportunity to say sorry, come back to Jesus, who immediately says, right, let's go again. That's what our Saviour's like. Even after we've messed up bigly, I'm not sure whether that's my, my typing or whether that's Apple's autocorrect, but it doesn't even have a red line under it, so it can't. Even after we've messed up in a big way, he, he has plans and work for us. That has to be deeply encouraging, doesn't it? We have to be encouraged by that. Because this week all of us will fail. All of us will fall. All of us will say and do and think things that are not Jesus-like, that are not the behavior of great people, those who are looking to serve others. We will all be selfish. We will turn inward on ourselves sometimes and not, and just be exasperated at the thought of serving and giving again. When that happens, let's be encouraged that Jesus knew this. He knew this already. And when we turn to him and say sorry, he forgives us as he did forgive and restore Peter. And thirdly, in those words that Jesus speaks, he assures us that he cares for us and provides for us. He says, he reminds his followers that when he sent them out previously, he took care of all their needs. You didn't need a bag, you didn't need sandals, you didn't need anything. Your needs were cared for. Now it's going to be slightly different. It's going to be difficult because Jesus is going to be treated as a criminal. He's going to be murdered. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be ridiculed. And being a follower of his means we're going to be ridiculed. We're going to be laughed at. We're going to be threatened. We're even going to be attacked. Yet still, Jesus cared for his followers when it was easy to care for them. He's going to care for his followers when it's difficult as well. We can trust and rest in him knowing that he cares for us and provides for us. These three assurances given by Jesus only hours before his death seem to are there to encourage his followers. Live like me, says Jesus. Live as a servant. Follow me. But when you fail, which you will, it's okay. I still have work for you and I will provide for you. That's the encouragement that Jesus brings. I had someone recently say that if I'm looking after my own interests, I have one set, two eyes, one pair of eyes looking after me, looking at me. If all the church is looking out for the interests of others, all of your eyes are looking out for me. That feels like a better way of going than just having my own obsession with myself. We might think to ourselves, I'm just too tired. When I get home, I have no energy to serve others. But experience says that it's in precisely those times 
that if we do serve each other, we come home from a busy, busy day with no time and find somebody's left a cake on the doorstep. That's what happens when the church lives in this sort of way. Many of us have experienced that sort of attitude, haven't we? We think to ourselves, I just don't have time today to think of others and to serve. And we somehow squeeze a few seconds into our day to send a text message to somebody who's having a really difficult day or drop a note through the door to say, just praying for you because we know you've got a tough week, only to find that we've got more time than we thought. Or somebody contacts us and says, do you fancy a coffee and a catch-up? That's what happens when we serve and serve and give and look outward, not focus on our own needs. And all of us here can say that we've had experience of something like that. So, who's going to be the greatest among us this week? Who's going to be the greatest among us here this morning, this week? In Jesus' kingdom, therefore, we've seen greatness is measured by the amount we serve and care for the needs of others, rather than being consumed with ourselves and our own needs. So, filled with his Holy Spirit, let's focus our hearts and our minds on living this way, the Jesus way, the outward-looking, serving way this week. And let's see how we get on. Amen.